Would you bow with me? Father, when we think of your love and we say it's reckless, we, we say that because we just don't understand it. We know that nothing you do, Lord, is without thought, without reason, without purpose, and without a plan. But Father, we recognize that what you did for us in the cross just doesn't make sense. That you would send your son into this broken world. That you would allow him to be one of us and to deal with the struggles of life as one of us. But not only that, that you would allow his life to be taken so that we might be forgiven. And Father, I just pray today that as we as we think and con- contemplate your word, Lord, we might recognize that you have pursued us with such great interest. God, I pray we might pursue you with the same passion and the same desire. Father, we thank you so much that you cared about us and you gave us an opportunity to know about you and to be in a place and a time where we would have an opportunity to learn about you. I pray, Lord, this morning as we open your word that you might open our hearts to what it is that you have to say to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been taking a a tour, if you will, or a a, a kind of a a season of time talking about family. And and we've, we've talked about what is God's image or what is God's purpose for my family what, what does God want my family to look like? You, you know, sometimes we, we have our kind of image and our idea of what we want things to look like, right? And uh, years and years ago, I was, actually not that many years ago, last year we were working in our, uh, our, in our, our shop, and, and whenever my, my folks had passed away, I'd just taken a lot of the stuff that I'd picked up from their house, and it was just too emotional for me at the time to go through. So I, I'd taken a lot of stuff, and I just put it in boxes, and I'd put it in storage, and it was time to go through that stuff because you kind of have to keep and pitch and just how it is and so we were going through a lot of those things and and I came across this picture that I drew I don't know when it was probably uh, early in mid to middle to late uh, high school years I'm guessing maybe early college but it was just a, a scrap on a piece of paper somewhere but I'd sketched out what I thought I wanted my house to look like someday and it was, it was kind of funny because, there, yeah, there were a few things that were different, but by and large, my house pretty much kind of looked like what I had envisioned that it would look like a long time ago. And, and, and that's how we are sometimes. We know what I want my family to look like or I want my, our home to look like. I, I, I have this idea of how I want things to work out. But sometimes we don't stop to ask ourselves, what does God want my family to look like? Because... We're just the people that get to enjoy family for a generation. God created the idea of family. We, we get to have the opportunity to, to, to be a family, but God is the one who instituted the family. And so his plan and purpose is a lot deeper. And his vision for it really should matter in a lot of ways to, to, to all of us. 
There's a family that a whole group of boys, and uh, if some of you guys have had a family full of boys before, and uh, the mom, they, they'd gone off to school, and the mom was redecorating the room, so she was painting, you know, and doing everything to it, and when they got home uh, from, from school that day, they had seen that their mother had painted a verse on the, on the wall of the room, and this is what it was. It's found in Psalms 133, and this is what she wrote, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. <laughs> and it goes on to say, um, it, is a, it is a dew we're falling on Mount Zion, uh, for, there is, uh, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So j- just so you guys know, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is in the middle of a desert, all right? So when the ju- dew falls, it's just refreshing sort of thing. And this mom decided that she was going to put on the wall of her boy's room how wonderful it is when you boys get along. And that's exactly what we all li- love to have at home, right? We want our homes to be a place of, of refuge. We want our homes to be a place of comfort, of safety, not just for us, but for our children and our grandchildren and even friends and family who are a part of our, our, of our circle. But achieving that is, is a lot more difficult. It's one thing for a mama to get out her paintbrush and paint a verse of scripture on the wall of her boy's room, but to lead those boys to live in, in unity and harmony with one another, that's an animal of a different color. That's a lot more difficult to do. And this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about how we deal with conflict in a way that builds up our family, that maintains unity and doesn't destroy it. Because the reality is... <clears throat> That if you are a family, you will deal with conflict, right? All of us have. If you're a young married couple and you've never had any conflict in your marriage yet, it's coming. But I'm guessing that most of us have already dealt with that. Um, when you take two people and you put them together, um, there is going to be some friction. I, I ran across this article this past week. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, of a guy in, I think it's in Thailand. His name is Mr. Zhang, I guess it is. Z-H-A-N-G. And uh, he has signed a contract with his wife. He's in China. He's, he signed a contract with his wife uh, upon marriage <clears throat> that she can only beat him up one day a week. All right, so let me explain. Um, apparently, Mr. Zhang is a guy that's a very high-spirited sort of guy. He likes to be right. He does not like to be wrong. He loves to argue. And his wife is a Taekwondo instructor. Um, yeah, and so uh, he was getting in fights with his wife, and she was beating him up. And so they went to conflict resolution, whatever that looks like in China, and uh, it was decided that she can only beat him up one day a week right here. All right, after that, she's got to just save up all that, all that frustration um, and, uh, and, and wait until Thursday or whenever the beating up day is and give him his medicine right there. Um, but uh, yeah, it would be nice if you could just sign a contract and fix and fix communication issues, if you could just sign a contract and not have any more uh, struggles in marriage. But we all know, of course, that's just not the way things work. And largely that's because no matter who you are in this room this morning, we are all broken. Adam and Eve were the very first couple placed in a perfect world with a perfect job and a perfect residence, right? They had everything absolutely as God 
would have wanted it to be, but it wasn't long before they allowed self-will and temptation to overcome them. And that, that, that harmony and that beauty and that unity that they experienced there in the garden was taken away from them. And, and we follow in their footsteps. We don't inherit their sin, but we inherit the tendencies to be self-interested and, and, and easily offended. We, we, we kind of follow in the tendencies to allow ourselves to be drawn away and tempted uh, by things that we know we shouldn't do. We are all broken. When God instituted the very first marriage ceremony, there's a line that Jesus chooses to repeat in the New Testament when talking about marriage. And it's found in Genesis, the second chapter, and verse 24. It's kind of the definition, if you will, a biblical or theological definition for marriage. And so it, it goes like this. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, all right? So we, we've, got, we've got kind of gender roles that are laid out here, all right? We've got a father and a mother. God wants for family to have both parents, all right? Um, God said a man will leave his father and his mother. He'll be united to his wife. So we've got a male and a female here, and the two will become one flesh, all right? So if, if you're looking for what does God call marriage in the Bible, and you're looking for a theological or legal uh, description of that, it's very, it's very obvious, and it's very early in Scripture. Genesis, the second chapter, verse number 24, God lays out, this is what I want marriage to look like. I want a man to leave his own parents, and I want him to find a wife, and I want them to have a separate and distinct from his parents' relationship, all right? And so, <clears throat> um, that's all well and good, but there's this little line at the end. It says, and they will become one flesh, right? They will become one unit. And that's where family and marriage get a little sticky. Because maybe if you're like me, you're a pretty strong-willed person, right? And, and maybe you have your own ideas about how you want your family to look like or how you want your finances to be spent or, or what you want to do for dinner or how you want to handle chores and responsibilities or how you want to parent your kids or discipline misbehavior. But your spouse might be coming into this relationship with their own ideas and their own agenda and their own, their own image of what this looks like and somehow we've got to figure out how to take two very different people and we've got to create one family and oh by the way just to remind us all we're all broken <laughs> and that's where conflict really kind of has its origin and there's three things I think that we we just want to notice this morning when talking about conflict three things that that we all tend to do maybe at one time or another that are bad and then we're going to talk about how we how we work to resolve conflict and these are not brand new this is not rocket science this, science this morning right here this is basic stuff but it's stuff that we all need to be reminded of because if we're not careful we can make mistakes in these areas so number one or a is this we tend to fight the wrong enemy Scripture says that our, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but is with the principalities of the air and the spiritual forces in heavenly places. We, we tend to forget that the battle that we're really fighting isn't necessarily a battle with our spouse, but it may well be a battle with the devil and that temptation that comes from him. We 
we forget that our spouse isn't the enemy or our friends aren't the enemy or our kids aren't the enemy or even your family, even your mother-in-law, um, they're not the enemy, all right? Uh, sometimes we forget that. We think that the people are the problem when the Bible says, no, there's something bigger at play right here. We have one enemy and his job in this world is described by Jesus. He is here to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That is what Satan's kind of mode of operation is in the world. <clears throat> Jesus said he comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have life abundantly. But every one of us, every moment of every day, we're making a choice between two patterns of how we're going to live life, right? And if we're honest this morning, most of us know that we've chosen to do things the devil's way sometimes just because it felt comfortable or it was easy or it was something that we wanted to do, right? And when we follow that bad advice it ends up in killing us stealing our joy and destroying the home that we want to build it happens every single time so it's important for us to recognize that we are facing an enemy that isn't somebody that we're looking at we're facing an ideology that's bigger than just something that our spouse maybe is bringing up around the dinner table we're dealing with temptations that are bigger than just the things that are going on in our heart in that moment, right? Sometimes it just kind of, we, we, we kind of feel like this is just me and I'm the only one who deals with these things and our family is the only one who's struggling. No, we are all combating the same things. We all have a common enemy. Satan is the enemy of all mankind and we've got to, to recognize that and to notice that. It's very important that we do. He will make it seem and I think Satan is very, very good at this. He makes it seem like those you love the most are against you the most. Listen, the Bible tells us something that God is what? God is love, right? God is light. Satan is the exact opposite of everything that God is. And so if you want to know how Satan is going to work in your marriage relationship, he is going to attack the love that the two of you have for one another. That's what he does. He hates that because it represents God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right? Every time he sees a happy couple, Satan looks at that and says, I hate that. I want to destroy that. I, want to, I, can't, I, can't, I can't handle that. So when you're at odds with your spouse, recognize that sometimes the emotion and, and, and fuel behind that is not always the situation that you're dealing with personally. I believe that sometimes it's the temptation of Satan that's, that's bearing heavily upon us. We sometimes forget who the enemy is. If you have a happy marriage here today, awesome. Let me warn you to guard against Satan coming into your marriage because he will. He does that. He does that and you talk to probably anyone who's been married in here over 10 years and they can look back now through the lens of time and they can say, you know what? We were being tempted. There's a, there's a point in time almost in every couple that I've talked to over the years and not everyone certainly but almost every couple have gone through a time or two where they had thought about maybe just walking out the door. And they look back at that and they said, you know what? That was a moment of temptation right there. And what we would have lost if that had happened. So recognize who the enemy is. The enemy, guys, is not the people that we're living in this life with. We're just the battleground. The enemy is Satan. Number two, we tend to be, draw, to be motivated or driven by the wrong 
motivations, by the wrong motives. I just will speak honest to you today that I am a selfish person. Now, maybe you aren't, but, but most of us are if we're honest with ourselves. Most of us want our spouse to see things from our perspective. We want it to be the most comfortable and convenient for us. We want things to work out in the way that we want them to work out. That tends to be kind of a basic part of human nature that we spend our entire life trying to kind of work through, right? You have a little kid, and and a little kid is hungry. A little kid is going to do what? We talk about this all the time. What does a little kid do when they're hungry? They cry, they holler, they make noise, right? It's because it's just kind of built into us. As human beings, we are self-seeking by nature. And so when we come to a place of conflict, one of the things that we just have to keep in our mind is, number one, that my spouse is not the enemy, Satan is. And number two, I might be motivated right here by by very wrong desires. Maybe, maybe right now I'm looking at this situation and it looks very huge to me, but the real reason that this situation is such a big deal to me is I'm guilty about something else. Or I, I've allowed myself to get pulled into something over here that I know I shouldn't. A few years ago, I had a, had a family come in and we were visiting and, uh, and, and there was just a lot of animosity from the husband toward the wife and, and I didn't really know at that point, didn't know the people. We were just visiting, trying to figure out if we could make something happen. And all of a sudden, as we, we began to have a conversation to the side with the husband, I realized that for a considerable amount of time, the husband had been addicted to pornography. And his own guilt for his behavior and the things that he was doing was being funneled into his marriage. He was being motivated by, the, by very wrong desires. Guilt is not a good, not a good motivation for us to, to work through things and to become better. It may motivate us to make changes, but sometimes it clouds our judgment. And so we've got to just be, we've got to recognize these things. If, if you're in a place today where you're in conflict with somebody in your family, all right, even somebody in your church family, this stuff is just kind of general stuff right here. First thing is we've got to recognize, hey, the enemy is Satan not the person, it's Satan. And number two, I might be motivated by the wrong desires right here. Maybe, maybe I'm wanting more of the financial control because I want to spend money on something that I want to spend money on. It's not that my idea is actually better for our family, but I have a motivation. All of us do. We need to recognize that. Why do I want what I want? That's a really important question for us to ask ourselves. And three, <clears throat> we might be using the wrong tactics sometimes the the things that we do when we're frustrated when we're angry when we're motivated by by conflict we're not dealing with that well and a lot of times honestly we've learned that we've learned that from people that we grew up with maybe we learned it from our mom and dads maybe we learned it from friends that are a little bit older than us that are married maybe we learned it from our peers maybe we just came by it naturally what i mean by the wrong tactics is sometimes we tend to do things that just take a bad situation and make it a lot worse for instance maybe we we hit below the belt. We use that, that terminology. What, what we mean by that is, is that, we, <laughs> that we, we say something kind of underhandedly, right? So we, we, we bring up something that really doesn't have anything to do with the conversation. Suppose that we're talking about a, a conversation that has to do with finances, for instance, but then we bring up a mistake that was made uh, 20 years before. Sometimes those things just don't build well. If we need to talk about what happened, we need to talk about that, but those are separate conversations. Maybe we, we walk away mid-argument. You know, sometimes there is a time for us to, to step aside and to kind of pull back and say, okay, I need to be careful about what's going on right here. But if we're not careful, 
walking away in mid-argument can be a big problem. We try to make a major decision uh, during an argument. Never, ever make a major decision in the middle of an argument. We bring up past mistakes or unrelated issues to deflect and to distract people from what's really going on. And these are just things that sometimes we naturally do. We don't sit down and think, I'm going to deflect this conversation, but it ends up happening. I'll bet you've been in one of these conversations, if not with your spouse, with somebody. Maybe you're in a management position at work, and you go up and you you talk to an employee, and you say, look, this needs to happen like this. We need to go from one to two to three, right? And then they, they start telling you about how that they were in the hospital last night uh, with, with a kid or something like that, right? Um, and then that's understandable. We might, we might say, okay, I understand that. But the reason I'm here is to talk about what we're doing right now in the moment. And I understand that maybe you're tired today and that's fine. If you need to go home, you need to deal with that. But what we're talking about right now is why we didn't get the job done the way it needed to be done. But we tend to do those things. So just keep these in mind because these are just natural human tendencies. We're more focused on being right or winning than actually working through an issue. And that's an important thing as well. Sometimes we just want to be right. That's something I struggle with. I like to be right. I like to, I, I like to know, and, and that's not a bad thing. If, how, how many of you are like me, incidentally, like that? You like to be right. All right, guys, that's a good thing right? It's important to be right. We need people in the world that are right, but just make sure that, <laughs> that you're not so focused on being the winner that you're actually losing the relationship that you have with that person, and we can do that. We try to hash things out over text. Ten years ago, this is not something that would have made a sermon, mostly, for most of us, but, but today we try to have conversations over text and and let me just say that text is an amazing tool I love it we all use it right but when you're having an argument with somebody you are going in with both hands tied behind your back if you're trying to have a text discussion now there's a time to pull back and have a written conversation but you miss a lot in a text kind of format. I would recommend that if you're at a place where you can't openly talk about something, rather than texting one another, you write a letter or use email. Because we tend to talk in more complete sentences and more, more logically when we write out a long form kind of thing. When we text, we use a lot just subconsciously. We use a lot of, a lot of shortcuts, and sometimes when we use a lot of those shortcuts, a lot of our meaning gets lost in that. And so there's some things just to, to notice. We're more concerned with our intention than we are with the impact of our words and actions. And this kind of is, a, is something that goes with us, right? Well, I didn't intend to, to hurt you when I said that, but I did hurt you when I said that. But we try to defend that by saying, well, I didn't mean to. And that's okay. You can bring that up, but recognize that if we've hurt somebody, we've done that, and we've got to fix that problem. And, and lastly, you're not aware of your aggressive or avoiding or avoidant body language. Uh, <clears throat> we, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about, about communication. Uh, but we have to mention it again when we're talking about conflict because sometimes the way we posture ourselves sends a really loud signal to our spouse or to our coworker or to our family member about what's really going on inside. And so we've got to kind of stop and think of these three things. Number one, remember that, that my... The person that's in front of me right here, my spouse, my child, my grandpa, grandma, my my coworker, my church family member, they are not the enemy, Satan is. Secondly, we want to remember that uh, that we are 
often motivated by the wrong motives personally. And we've got to be just honest about ourselves with that or to ourselves with that. And number three, we sometimes use the wrong tactics. Maybe we don't mean to, but if those things aren't working, we need to notice those things and do something different. So how do we fight for our family? How do we have, deal with, with, with an argument or with a difference of opinion in such a way that we don't blow things up but that we build things stronger. Because in every conflict that you will have in a marriage relationship, in a church situation, or even in a, in a working situation amongst coworkers or in a family situation extended, every conflict has a potential to have two outcomes. You can either become weaker on the other side of that conflict or you'll become stronger. Very seldom do you stay the same. If it's a real conflict, you've either built some bridges, reinforced some connections, you've either put some things together that are, that are even tighter and even stronger and there's a deeper level of understanding than you ever had before or you've burned some bridges and you've broken some connections and you've weakened the things that tie you together. And so how do we make sure that we deal with those things in a way that we're building and strengthening and creating the kind of network we need to, to build through the future for us and our family, but then for those who follow us, right? We inadvertently use the paths that others have created ahead of us. And, and so how do we teach the kids that are living in our homes or uh, other people that are a part of our church family or the people that we're working with in our, in our job environment? How do we teach them how to deal with conflict in a positive way? And so I, I think there's a great passage. We often read this, but sometimes uh, scripture is just so good you have to use it. It's found in James, the first chapter. And um, we'll pick up in verse number 19 or so. Uh, James is just this incredibly practical book. I love it. Um, James doesn't talk a lot of, uh, a, lot of uh, a lot of theory. He just kind of lays things out as they are. And he says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Pay attention, right? Everyone should be, so these are things we should be, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Now, this is not a passage of scripture that probably will catch many of us in this room this morning off guard. You're probably like, man, I've never heard that before. But if we're honest, this is a passage of scripture that we struggle with because it's not easy to do those things, that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to come angry, or become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God Requires. So in a few moments, we're going to take, that we have left, we're going to take a look at these three things kind of independently this morning. Number one, he starts off and he says that we need to stop and listen carefully. There's an old story that's told years and years ago. I always like it because I think it's a good one uh, of a guy that had a, that had a, had a pocket watch that he was, he was given. And it was really precious thing to him. And this is back in the olden days when, uh, when they had ice houses. This is back before commercial refrigeration, right? So we're way back in the day. And uh, in the wintertime, they would go out and up north and they would cut big blocks of ice out of the lakes. And then they would float them into an ice house that was on the side of the lake right there. And they would pile them together in this ice house and then they would cover them with big heaps of sawdust. And it was kind of this insulating sort of thing. And so then as summer came, um, you would go in and they would cut you a block of ice. Does anyone, does anyone remember that from being down here? Any of the older people here today? I don't think you guys would. I think we probably always had, I think that generation has probably passed on. Um, what? 
I was all up north. Yeah, they didn't have any frozen. They, they, they had to bring it down in rail cars to you guys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so they would have these big ice houses, and this guy worked in here, and he's doing something that particular day in all this deep sawdust piled up over all this ice, with, and his precious pocket watch disappears. And so, oh, man, he's, he's heartbroken. He's looking all over for it. It's just nothing but piles of, of sawdust. And underneath that, he knows that in the spring it's, or in the late summer, it's all going to melt, and this precious watch is going to be destroyed. Now, we don't look at watches as precious, but in those times, those kinds of items were such a luxury that you didn't get to have them a lot, and so he's, he's super motivated to find that. They, they work for hours trying to find it, and finally, they all go take a break, and a little kid goes into the ice house, and he closes the door, and he comes out with the watch about 15 minutes later. And the people are like, how did you find them? I and we looked all over. We had people digging through the sawdust, and he said this. He said, well, I just went into the ice house and I shut the door and I was really quiet and I heard it ticking. It's amazing in life what we learn, what we can find, what we can begin to understand when we start to listen. As the Holy Spirit inspired James to write this in James 1 and verse 19, he said, the first thing on that list is quick to listen. Most of us by default are quick to respond. But God is tempting to rewire our defaults right here. He said, you'll be far better off if you're quick to listen. If you notice in the life of Christ, one of the things that Jesus did well is Jesus asked questions well. Jesus knew how to probe people. And what Jesus is really doing there is what we call today in modern psychology active listening, all right? So he asks a question, and then he listens back. And he listens to what that person says. He understands where they are. And that's an important thing for us to do because sometimes I think I understand the problem, but I don't really understand the problem. And so when I attempt to give a solution to a problem that I don't understand, I'm probably not going to give the right solution. And that provides frustration to the other person involved in that situation. And a lot of times they'll just quiet down, right? And, and so we really don't resolve the situation. We just kind of go into this stalemate that, that just kind of allows the tension and frustration in a relationship to continue to grow. So James says, here's some great advice. Every one of us should be quick to listen. Stop and listen carefully. If you need to, ask a person to repeat or say what you're saying is. Those are really important things to kind of regurgitate or get, get the real meaning of what someone is saying out of them. Someone once said, and I think they're so right, it's amazing what you can hear when we listen. And that's so true. Second thing is this. James said to guard our words vigilantly, slow to speak to guard my words diligently, to make sure that what I say, when I say it, is exactly what I mean and what I need to say. There's a problem that a lot of times as humans, when we get kind of motivated emotionally by something, we tend to either not talk at all, and some of us are like that, we just kind of clamp down, which is not good, because then the other people involved in that situation really don't know what's going on in our minds and in our hearts, so some of us do that, and others of us just kind of start just unwinding, right? So stuff just comes out, and it's not really processed, it's not really thought through, it's not really thoughtful, we're just kind of dumping stuff stuff out there and sometimes we dump stuff out there that we don't mean or stuff that we shouldn't be saying in the first place there's this great passage in the new living translation it's written so well 
uh, Proverbs 21, verse 23. And he says, watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut and you will stay out of trouble. And uh, I wish I had learned that a long time ago uh, in my life. Uh, I would probably be a lot better off for that. <laughs> so uh, so uh, a proverb to remember, watch your tongue, keep your mouth shut and you will stay out of trouble. That's not the exact, uh, that's not the literal translation of it. That's a New Living Translation, but I think it's, it's a really good one. A great example of that is a story that I read years ago of, of guys, two guys that were sitting in an audition. And, uh, and one guy, the, the lady's up front and she's performing the piece. And, uh, and one guy leans over to the guy next to him and he says, that lady really cannot sing. And uh, the guy looks back and says, that's my wife. And, and the guy's trying to figure out a way to dig himself out of this. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. what I meant was, is, is, is that song is terrible. And the guy looked back and said, I wrote the song. <laughs> and, uh, and this is a great example of sometimes the world doesn't need to know Jason Quarter's opinion about everything, right? Sometimes what I'm thinking maybe really isn't that important. And I would be wise if I kept my lips closed. David wrote this in Psalms 141. And this is a prayer, and I think it's a great prayer. He's praying this to God, and he says, set a guard over my mouth. We, we tend to set guards over things that are dangerous, right? We put guardrails around drop-off points. We put manhole covers or guards over deep wells because we don't want people to fall into these things or get themselves injured in some way. And David said, God, I want you to put a guard over my mouth, not to keep my teeth. Well, maybe that too. But, um, but Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. David is literally coming to God here and he's saying, God, help me to keep good check on what I'm saying. And maybe that's a prayer that some of us need to just kind of put in our daily routine. Because if, if you're like me, sometimes you, you, at the end of the day, you're kind of doing a little inventory at the end of the day and you're thinking about life and you step back and you think, why did I say that? Why did I, why did I talk to that person in that way? Why did I respond like that why did I do that maybe it's a great habit for us just to get up every morning and say God thank you for the beautiful day you've made God help me to bring glory and honor to you today help me to accomplish your purpose God guard my mouth help me not to say anything dumb <laughs> it's probably a very very good thing for all of us to pray number three he finishes up James does but he says and slow to become angry we are called to manage our anger righteously it is true that Jesus became angry and drove the money changers out of the temple, but his anger was a righteous anger. And, and so often for a lot of us, our anger is not righteous. It's, it's not right in any way. And uh, it reminds me of a, of a baseball game from 1894. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard about this. Probably some of you guys have. It was a, it was a baseball game between the Baltimore Orioles and the Boston, uh, the Boston Red Sox now today, just in Boston in those days. And um, what happened that night was anything but routine. So um, the, the, the Orioles, John McGraw, got into a fight with Boston's third baseman. All right, I'm just going to run through this because I got to get this right. And so you know how that works. Two baseball players get into a fight over, over uh, sliding in, as I remember right, with cleats up. And so then pretty soon, team members from both teams come in and they start fighting. So this has turned into like a, a miniature fight out on the field. And of course, the spectators enjoy that, enjoy that. Except that then 
the warfare spread from the baseball field into the grandstands. The people that were Orioles fans started fighting with the Red Sox fans in the, in the, in the grandstands. And, um, and then things went from bad to worse. Someone set fire to the stands in the ballpark, and the entire ballpark burned to the ground. And not only that, but 107 other buildings in and around the ballpark in downtown Boston. All right, so just rewind this for just a second right here, right? At the end of the day, 107 buildings and a ballpark were burned down because one guy slid into third base with his cleats up. And those two guys got in a fight, which caused both of their teams to get into a fight, which caused both of the fan bases to get into the fight, which then caused some nut job to light the thing on fire, which burned down the town. Notice what happened right here? An incident, incident between two people was joined by group of people from both of their teams. And those two teams sucked in a group of people bigger than themselves. And that opened the door for somebody that was truly out of control to cause real chaos. So let me, let me just say to all of us today, there will be a time where you are at odds with somebody. They may be in your own family. It may be at your workplace. It may be in the church family. And Jesus, the, the scripture says this, said if a brother, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Let me just say that we all, every one of us in this room this morning have a personal responsibility to deal personally with the person that we are at odds with, Right? The first problem in the story of the Baltimore Orioles and the Boston Red Sox was that the teams didn't stay in their dugouts. They didn't let the two guys on the field work out the problem. Those two guys out on the field were joined by their teams. And that's a very, very dangerous thing because this is beginning to escalate and Satan loves it. Remember, he's our enemy. This is Satan's kind of plan. This is how he loves to work. So I'll get two people at each other and then their two teams will get at each other and then, then there's teams around those two teams, right? So then there's these fans of these two teams and they're going to get at one another and then I can really burn things down. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that happen in churches. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that happen in families. It's real. It may be a cute story from the 1800s but it's exactly how humans behave and when the day is done 107 people have lost businesses and family dwellings and lives because two guys didn't take care of their business in the kind of way that they should have so guys we need to ang manage our anger righteously and that's not just an option for us that's a commandment for us a lady once came to Billy Sunday he was a famous revival preacher and, uh, and it, she was tempting to rationalize her angry outburst. And she said, there's nothing wrong with me losing my temper. I blow up and then it's over. <laughs> and Billy Sunday responds back to her and he says, so does a shotgun. And look at the damage that does. Our anger can either cause resolution and cause things to become stronger or anger can tear and destroy. And largely that's what is fueling that anger. 
Remember, Jesus said that I have come that they might have life and have life abundantly. Jesus got angry, but he got angry about the right things, and he dealt with things in an appropriate sort of way. Satan wants us to get angry about the wrong things, and he wants us to use that to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He wants us to break things apart with our anger. We have to guard against that. I, I've never understood, and, and if this is a part of your family, I, I'm so sorry, but years ago, I, I had a family come in, and they were estranged from a, from a child. And for years, there had just been this bitter and angry dispute between them and their, their kids. I don't think there's any pain that's quite that deep as not being able to have a relationship with people who are, who are family. Anger does those things. Let's just recognize that it's a very powerful emotion, but also very, very dangerous. As we close this morning, I just want to share with you one last passage of Scripture. It's found in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. It picks up in verse number one, and and Paul writes this so well here to the church in Ephesus. And he says, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and with gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's a beautiful passage, but here's the part that I want to get to today eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace see what Paul understood was is that if we're all Christians we've all all been bought with the blood of Jesus all of us deserved an eternity away from God and punishment and terrible things because we chose that path just like Adam and Eve did right but, but God in his mercy and God in his grace said, you know what, I'm going to give you a chance to have something that you don't deserve, Jason. I'm going to give you a chance to, to come and have your sins washed away through baptism. I'm going to give you the opportunity to have my spirit, make your spirit alive in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a chance to rise out of the waters of baptism and walk in a brand new life as a new creature, eternally made pure and whole before me because of what Jesus did clothed with Christ all, you know all that stuff but Paul said if, if we have that same spirit that spirit comes with a responsibility he said that we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit that we don't want to ever put God in a place where two people are on either side of, a, of an issue and, and Satan is right there in the middle where the spirit's unity is broken in the bond of peace Note, notice how Paul goes on he says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to one call there's one Lord one faith one baptism one God and Father who, who is over all and through all and in all But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul says, look, I I just want you to know this. There's not two teams when it comes to God. There's Satan and there's God. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. We may not agree, but we are all on the same team and we need to make certain that we figure out how to maintain the unity in our homes and maintain the unity in our church and work to build unity in the places where we're at. You know, that's one of the beautiful things that Christianity brings into a workplace is a spirit of of wanting to be unified and to work together with people. That is so important. That's one of the markers of what Jesus called us to bring into this world. That's part of what the light looks like. 
I know that nothing I said this morning is easy. We started talking about that. It's one thing to paint a verse on your son's wall. It's another thing to have peace and harmony. But church, families, it's worth fighting for. And when we have that peace and that unity, it's the brightest light for Jesus that we could ever muster. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing today. If you have a need, you know, as always, you're welcome to come. If you need a visit with one of us, we're, we're going to stay around. We'd be happy to sit down with you and have a conversation. Let's sing together, church.